Welcome, Dean Stotts. It's fantastic to have you with us today. Your book is out in the UK, but it's being relaunched in America very soon. And yeah. you're also a Leopold uh, brand ambassador, which is fantastic because obviously Viking represents Leopold in the UK. What I wanted to start with um, asking you about, because your book goes into a lot of detail about your background as a Royal Engineer, as mm -hmm. a Special Forces operator, and then going through injury to breaking, not just breaking, but smashing a world record. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of take it back to the start of you know your career was was kind of full on with the military but yeah. then your injury hit and I just wondered if you could just talk us through your injury first like what what happened on that day yeah so um as you touched on I I, I didn't go the normal traditional route going from the Royal Engineers to the special boat service so I was one of the first army candidates to do that much to the disgust of my friends were in the SAS I went to the special boat service um and 16 years into my career, we were going back out to Afghanistan again on another tour. And we we're doing pre-deployment training in Oman. But for me, I'd reached the pinnacle in my career. I was working alongside like-minded individuals, uh, people with the same sort of drive and passion of always pushing the boundaries. And so for me, I, I never had any expectations or of, of leaving the military. I was what they would call a lifer. And so we were out in Oman doing a what's called a hey-ho jump. It's a high altitude, high opening jump. It's a method of insertion, uh, which we'd used before operationally in, in Afghanistan. And I'd done hundreds of these jumps before, and it was about the third or fourth jump of the day. Exit the aircraft as normal. But um, for, this time when I looked up, my foot was in the lines above my head. So there was I was in a situation I'd never been in before, and I was, I was frantically trying to kick my leg out in time and I couldn't my leg got pulled up over my head and to the right so straight away because of the pain I was vomiting and at 15,000 feet you limits of oxygen I was also drifting in and out of consciousness but my first challenge was to try and land this parachute um I approached the DZ saw the approach of my uh, my, my comrades and yeah landed one-legged it, it was an excellent landing actually in, in para terms but unfortunately the uh, damage sustained I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus in my knee, my hamstring, my calf, and my quadriceps, all the supporting muscles as well. So uh, after 16 years, unfortunately, that was the end, end of my military career. I hadn't really had any visions of leaving the military. And so for me, that came as a, as, as a real shock. And there was no build-up time. It was like, no, thank you for your time. It's time to leave. So I sort of went through what was known as an identity crisis. And I got to where I was in the military through my sort of physical robustness you know that's where I got to in my life and um, I didn't really recognize myself anymore I couldn't even run 100 meters without my knee giving way so um, yeah lots lots going on and to add to the pressure my wife was also eight months pregnant as well so worrying about entering this new environment which is alien to us which is the civilian sector <laughs> and uh, understanding what my role and purpose now was within society. Did you ever think I mean when that happened and you would going through the recovery from the injury did you ever think you would be where you are now no not at all if you'd asked asked me 11 years ago you know this is where you would be this is what you would have achieved uh, I would have thought you were talking about someone else completely more so because that what I'm doing now is more in the public domain and I've spent 
majority of my life and when I was in the security sector under the shadows. Uh, so I always say I do a lot of, um, I still do a lot of stuff in the security sector. And I always say there are two Dean Stotts. There's the one that you see with the brand ambassadors with Leopold with books and TV. And then there's still Dean that's very much working behind the scenes on some of the private security stuff. But no, I think you just, you know, life throws those curveballs at you. You know, of course, I'd, I'd never wanted to be injured. I would love to still have been serving in the special boat service. But you just, you know, if one avenue is blocked, you just go go down another avenue. But as long as you have the right mindset and, and approach, you know, anything anything's achievable. And as you read with Relentless, you know, I got to the my pinnacle in my career in the, in the military and unfortunately was told I couldn't do it. And then succeeded again in the security industry but to then do it in a sport you've never done before it's not luck it's obviously a mindset and an approach to everything you do and you talk a lot in your book about bonding I think um, it was with a rugby player who'd also sustained a career-changing injury and what would you say to someone who you know say last week had a similar injury at that moment in time what words of advice would you give to them when they're just looking at a really uncertain future yeah I think obviously at the time you know when I look back and you know, I would have done things completely different I didn't even acknowledge that there was a problem but if you speak to my wife she'll give you a totally different um different answer to mine but it's it's almost like you know for me it's almost appreciate that actually I was still there I was alive you know I lost a lot of friends um so at least I was still there thank you for my family but um you know things do get better and just take one stage at a time you know one thing I've learned over life is that I'm always quick to try and get back into the game and then you get injured again. So listen to the advice of others that have been there before. And it's hard, you know, when you have a sort of background like ours, we are very impatient. We want to do it and we want to do it yesterday, not today. Um, so, yeah, probably just appreciate the fact that you are still here and then yeah, just take time and, and have a plan as well. You know, have, have a plan um, and have a couple of plans because one plan may not work. Uh, it's always good to have a secondary and a tertiary. What do you think you would have chosen as the challenge if if Alana hadn't given you the Guinness Book of World Records and said, here, you know, go mm. find a challenge? How would you have got that adrenaline adrenaline fix that seems to have kind of pervaded your life? Yeah, well, I think as you read the book, the reason we had that conversation is, you know, I worked in the security industry and, you know, I just single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy out of Libya on my own 18 military and four diplomats and so so for me I was living a lifestyle where I was, that was my adrenaline and that was my 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 go-to that was my rush um and so I took a sabbatical from the security industry and so it had to be something other than that Alana said you need to do something to keep yourself physically and mentally engaged the reason we chose the bike ride was because that was five years after the injury my injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg and so I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar and so what I was doing I hadn't really come to terms with the fact that I'd left the military I was still trying to match that adrenaline rush that I had when I was in there without actually having that top cover and support if something had gone wrong so for me it had to be a challenge that was going to test me physically and, and mentally and something I could really get get behind so I bought a push bike off Amazon and never really cycled before. I think I say eight miles there and back from the office. And so, yeah, I said to Alana, I, I want to, I've always fancied a world record. And so, yeah, 
I was thinking living in Scotland. I was thinking maybe east to west coast of Scotland. But then Alana then found the world's longest road, which runs from southern Argentina to northern Alaska. So I sort of joked that she wanted me out of the house at that point. And, you know, just for the listeners, you know, 14,000 miles from southern Argentina to northern Alaska, because of the curvature of the earth, it's the equivalent of cycling from London to Sydney and then another 4,000 miles. But having only cycled 20 miles, I thought, yeah, that's the challenge for me. It sounds quite arrogant in my approach, but I knew mentally and uh, endurance-wise, I had that that mindset. Um, I just needed to do it in a sport I'd never done before. And <clears throat> cycling was good because it wasn't aggravating or hampering my knee. And so that's why we decided to do that one. I know, but I, did, I, I didn't have visions of doing the world's longest road. But for me, that what that brought is additional challenges. I was going through areas, countries I'd never been to before, some of them, but also... Very, very fortunate in the military having been in the desert, the Arctic, the jungle. And I literally was going through all those sort of t- uh, environments and terrains on this challenge. So that's what was the attraction. And I mean, the big the big thing as well is that you raised a, a million pounds for, mm. for charity, for, for Heads Together, which is the charity that was sent, set up by William, Harry and Kate. Yeah. And it supports mental health, not just in the veteran community, but mental health across the spectrum of of community. When we talk about the issue of kind of mental health, mental strength, for you, do you think it's nature, nurture, or a combination of both? When you Mm, you think of resilience and relentlessness, (laughs) you know, how how do normal people come back and come out fighting? Yeah, I think there's a, there's an element of uh, there's an element of nature and nurture, and also the support network around you. You know, I see a lot of guys and girls transitioning now. Some of them are having a turbulent time. Some of them are having a much smoother time. And I tend to see that those that's more smoother have a great support network around you. And um, you touched on heads together. I, I originally this this bike ride was going to be for modern slavery and human trafficking. And that's what me and my wife were very big into. And and that route was one of the more prevalent routes that we were doing. But Harry and I met each other 15 years ago on a JTAC course and been friends since. So I I called him, told him what I was doing. And him and I had done a lot of stuff in the, um, more in the veteran charity areas uh, before. So I wasn't really aware about mental health too much until I got introduced to Heads Together. And I'd, I'd seen it firsthand with some of my friends in the military, but I wasn't aware how big an issue was throughout the whole of society, postnatal depression, young children, teenagers. So it really did open my eyes um, about it. And again, I didn't really know too much. I got introduced to the Royal Foundation and they're like, what's your message? What's your messaging? And I was like, mm. I didn't really have a message. I came in here because Harry told me to come speak to you. I didn't, but, so I sort of, I looked inwards and after a couple of minutes, I sort of said, well, look, physical activity helps your mental state. And I was told, no, no, you, you can't use that. This was back in 2017. I said, well, why not? And they said, it's not being scientifically proven. I said, that's fine, but I don't need a scientist to tell me that I feel good when I'm training. So I ignored them anyway and carried on banging the drum. So there's obviously three, three areas to mental health. There's the pharmaceutical, which you want to avoid those communications. So my messaging was always the, the, the physical activity. Back to your question, the nature or the nurture. If I, I look at back at Dean Stock age 17 when he joined the army would I be able to achieve what I did you know uh, with the world record probably not so I think there there is an element there's got to be a slight element of nature but I think there's a, a lot of nurture you know I, I learned a lot from my time in the military there's a great phrase you can't be experienced without experiences so everything I did in my life I 
took something from that and then just just moved forward and you know whether it was a good thing whether it was a bad thing you know learn from your mistakes um i do get asked you know would you change anything would you speaking back to dean 16 would you change anything i said no i would do everything exactly the same because that's what's carved me out to here so yeah, i think there's an element of, of, of nurture in there that's a really good answer and i think it's it's just something that as i was reading i was just thinking this this is pretty. A, this is such a unique story because there's not many people who I think could do that, or indeed they can't because they haven't done it. But it kind of made me think more about the the wider veteran angle and the Office for Veterans Affairs in the UK. They've launched a huge campaign and they want to make the UK the best place to be a veteran in 2028. By 2028, I wondered from your perspective what support could be improved for veterans in the UK if you could choose three things to improve on what what would they be three things a uh that's a very good question no it's night and day living here in the u.s compared to the uk you know i sort of remember when i joined the military at 95 in in 95 you had short hair and tattoos you weren't even allowed in a nightclub and then here like their approach to to the military is, 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 is totally different. But I think obviously likes of Afghan and Iraq, that they, they sort of really uh, changed people's perception on, on, on veterans, especially when we started seeing more and more coming back with life-changing injuries. For me, it's not so much when you're in the military, it's great. They will do everything to support you. It's that period of time when you then leave the gates and that's it. You're, you, you are forgotten. I will only use myself as an example. After my injury, it took me five years to win a tribunal hearing against to get my pension. You know, I got to the top of where I was. They pumped millions of pounds into me, training me up. But then as soon as you're gone, it's like you, you're almost forgotten. They say that they do a lot for veterans and I, I sort of disagree. But I know the likes of Johnny Mercer and the Office of Veterans Affairs. I know Johnny Mercer because I, I was his instructor on his commando course when he was a young second <laughs> lieutenant. So I've seen him grow through the ranks. And so he's doing a lot on, on behalf of the veterans. But And I have seen changes over the years, but there's a lot more that can improve. It's, like, it's, it's the follow-up, it's the aftercare. It's not so much when you're in it's what you're doing for them afterwards I, I I think you get a I had a follow-up call when I left 10 weeks just someone rang me up how are things have you got a job yeah I've got a job that was it that's it that, that, that was my follow-up from the military and, and it's not enough you, they pump a lot of millions into us they train us up and then they sort of leave us leave us on our own so I don't know what the actual answer is you can look here to what the, the US do but even when you speak to the veterans here they, they still haven't got it right either they have the, the funding but is the funding going in, in the right places for me is really well I would say the main answer was the transition um, you know the military are great like, that your father your mother they, they clothe you they feed you they pay you on time I didn't know what heat band or council tax band we were paying on camp I didn't care because I was doing the job that I loved so some things that the civilian sector have been doing all their life they know how to who to deal with in the council they you know live in that civilian sector for us leaving the military we that's normally done for you. So it's really those transition skills, giving you the right person, wherever you're moving to, who's who's a point of contact to the local council, get you set up in, in all those things. But also look at the transition workshop. I, a friend of mine, he left the military uh, special boat service uh, probably about three years ago, reached out and he said, I didn't, you know, I sort of helped him out, get some work and got him a client. And he's like, how do I do a proposal or an, an NDA? And I'm, I'm like, well, that's quite, you know, for me, it was quite simple because I've been out for a while. So I did this for him. And I said, well, what, what are you getting taught now back in 
in when you leave the military and he's out uh cv writing and interview techniques that's it and it stops there and i was like well i've never had a an interview and i've never given on my cv but if someone taught me how to, about ndas or how to write proposals and so it's those other sort of business skills that i think they should be doing they they, they have people these business experts but they're not really business experts it's le officers who are just trying to find a job for them that they don't actually have to leave who've had no experience in the corporate sector so i think there should be a department or some sort of assistance on that is is and there's actually when you speak to the guys and girls that leave that they really worry they're, they're actually head and shoulders above their peers the skill sets you get from the military outweigh whatever the, the civilian sets you get but you know i do a lot of international guest speaking and get flown in by these big corporates and they are fascinated i call it the battlefield to the boardroom they are fascinated in the decision making we make under pressure in high octane environments and it's like how do you guys and girls remain calm you know especially when the plan doesn't go to plan you know for us it's, it's normal so we already have those skill sets and experiences it's just understanding the language you know j4 or j4 in the military it is you know it's the stores you know it's just just doing that so i think if they could do that that would that would help a lot more uh, a lot more people and then just making sure they follow up uh, on what they say they're going to do and they and, and do it but I, I know johnny's really big behind this and hopefully you'll see some big changes yeah i think now he's he's back in it's a really good mm. sign a really good sign it's yeah. really interesting to talk to you about those subjects because um, yeah. i think they need to be talked about because it's only from people like you who've come out the other side and have a success story that can share that that you know those those insights and so moving on to scopes so we've done um a bit of work with jimmy deville who i think is a, a royal what well, is a is it is he still still a serving royal engineer he's an engineer for some time uh royal yeah. engineer but now he's a tv presenter i just thought it was it was interesting you're both engineers you both you have worked with um high-end products like leopold scopes and yeah. I wanted to ask you kind of as a for I say a former royal en- royal engineer former SBS or or technically kind of is still part of the family um yeah. with them but um what value do you place on quality kits and quality engineering you know for us we were always taught in the military is is trust your kit you know so whether you're parachuting whether you're hanging off the side of a ship where you're diving or whether you're firing rounds down the range um and you know i i did notice when i went to the special forces that sort we were very lucky to get exposure to equipment probably the rest of the green army uh weren't and it wasn't the most expensive kit it was just the quality of the product yeah quality is key really for you to be able to do you know we we've got to worry about so many other things that we can't then be worrying about the kit so we know that we've got the best top quality kit and that's one thing with less for us uh to worry about and it enables us to do our job more and more effectively so there's a lot of reliance on on the on the quality of the equipment definitely how did you come across Leopold? Yeah, well, as Andy touched on with the book Relentless and very much being the strap line uh, for Leopold is Be Relentless. So I got invited to the uh, the SHOT Show in Las Vegas uh, beginning of last year. And I, I, I flew in and coming from the UK is a different culture from living in the US. Obviously here, you know, you have access to, to weapons and, and, and everything, you know, the Second Amendment. And so I sort of went in not really knowing what to expect. I didn't realize how big it was and how big an industry it was in the US. So I went around, I got introduced to a few of the brands and I, and it was, it was just, I saw Be Relentless 
And so that's what sort of took me over in that, in that direction initially. But I had spoken to a gentleman earlier on in the day from Barrett, and we were talking about some of the next weapon systems that they had, and you know, he was showing me the weapons. I mean, they had two scopes on them, and you know, I'd never heard of Leopold in the UK Special Forces. You know, we had other other scopes at the time, but I was obviously a sharp shooter in the SBS, so I, I did have a passion for shooting. And so I said, "Oh, who are these brands?" And he you know, mentioned Leopold, mentioned another brand. He said, "Well." I'll, I'll tell you now, if, if you had the choice, I won't go anyone but Leopold. And so, okay. Uh, then I then saw the Be Relentless sign, met a gentleman called Nick, just got chatting with him. And then not long after that, you know, there was a, a big shooting event and he asked, he invited me along. And there, was, there were other brands there and, you know, I fired them all. And yeah, Leopold was great. But I was, what I like to do is also speak to those that were using it. Other friends of mine here in the US, especially in the Special Forces, and it was, it was just when you talk about quality, you know, Leopold was always the number one choice for them all. So for me, it was like, it was a perfect marriage, as they say. And so I've obviously since then been using them. And I went shooting one day when I was in, in the SBS, we used to have the six, six hour uh, pistol as our sidearm, but we just had iron sights. And here, I, you know, Leopold then gave me the Delta Point Micro on, on the Glock and I'd never fired a, a red dot. And I was... I was sort of, initially, I was missing everything. And then I was like, take it off. Let's go back to the iron side. But no, the, one of the Leopold guys pulled me aside and then, you know, sort of trained me and trained me all day. And yeah, you know, it changed my thinking on how you use a weapon uh, compared to what I, I was used to, just because I'd never had that exposure before. And so, yeah, that's how Leopold and I then sort of formed up and, and, and had a relationship. So with um you said you you got kind of hands-on with a lot of their range their scopes what's um which ones are your kind of go-to products from leopold if we're talking about rifle scopes yeah the rifle scope for me was the mark 5 hd you know that that was the one i i I like you know we we sort of we took it from a normal range and then went out to um wyoming out into the wild there and and started using it then and and for me, it wasn't so much being able to use it. I saw the way, you know, we were having to cover some some ground and it, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't flat ground and the weapons are getting banged about. And, I'm, and I was with a couple of other guys and I was conscious that, you know, we damaged the scopes and we hadn't, you know, they they were get, they're going through some really tough, uh, tough tests and, and still performing. But I, I hadn't used the Mark V before that, but it sort of, from then on, that's it. That's all I. That's all I have now on my uh, as as a, as a scope. Um, but that's that's my sort of go to. And as I touched on, I'd never used red dot on pistol. It was always iron sight because for us it was a, it was a secondary. Um, if your primary had a had a stoppage, it wasn't our primary weapon. But the more the more that I've now used it, I've really sort of changed my thinking. And and you know, for anyone if they get an opportunity, was yeah, would red dot on a pistol. So uh, the Mark Five HD and the Delta Point Micro. My two go-tos. How do you, in the States, do you go out hunting? Do you go to the range? How do you interact with them? Uh, a bit of, a bit of both, really. Um, there's obviously events, always uh, events around uh, the country. Again, like I said, I, I knew, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was naive of me, but I knew obviously in the US that, you know, people had access to guns, but, you know, hunting here is, you know, it's huge. So for me, I, it depends where I am as well because i've obviously got a busy busy lifestyle so 
for me, I, you know, I keep, if I want to get some quick round, rounds down the rings, there's a, um, I call it a country club rather than a country club called Hot Rods and Handguns down in Huntington Beach. We, you know, it's, it's got a restaurant, a cigar bar, whiskey bar, but you can go in there. And so that's why I tend to do a lot of the, a lot of the pistol work uh, just to stay on, on top of that. But then also I'm, I'm still doing a lot in the security industry, like training, training sort of militaries as well. So any opportunity I can get with them on the ranges, obviously with a young family, I'm, I'm slowly starting to get into, into more of the hunting aspect of things. Um, but these, to, these can last from one day up to, up to a week. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm sort of stepping into. I have that military stuff. The range stuff is, is simple, but I'm sort of putting that into into use uh, on some live 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 hunts. So for the live hunts, just out of interest, what rifle um, have you chosen to take out with you for those hunts? So, so at the moment, I'm just borrowing one. It's actually quite funny because I've literally just had my visa approved for the US. So we moved over two years ago, right in the middle of COVID. So all the embassies were shut. So I've now got, but you can't buy a rifle until you have a your visa and your social security number. And then you've got to wait 90 days. So I think I have about two weeks left. So at the moment, I am just borrowing. It's actually quite funny that I'm sponsored by a tactical clothing brand, a, an optics thing, uh, an optics company. My friend gives me ammunition. I just don't have anything to fire it through. So at the moment, I'm beg stealing and borrowing everything that when we're on, on the ground. So I haven't, I haven't got my go-to yet, um, but that's something I'm probably going to sort of choose shortly. What's in the uh, what's in the running to be selected? Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't want to give away too much. I'm chatting to a couple. Of... <laughs> I'd, I'd probably take advice from Andy and Rob. If you, if you guys have got any top tips for me, if any of you guys think are the big standouts, you know, if I, I think if I the choice, yeah, I think the big standout and where you are in America, the obvious choice for your background and the way you look at kit would. Mm have to be the Ruger precision rifle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree, Rob? I think if you're going to do some long, long range target, I think, yeah, probably. But if you if you're looking for a hunting weapon, it's too yeah. long, it's too heavy. Anything from Mosberg or Ruger I'd go for. Really? Okay, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> what about a Merkel? Uh, I, mean, I, I was obviously in, in the SBS, I was used to uh, the HK417. Uh, so I'll probably but then again you <laughs> it's not really a hunting weapon out here. Uh, the no. position is is used quite a bit for hunting out there. However, yeah. it lends itself especially to the range work and is very well received in America. And the, and the champions in the PRS, some of the champions are actually using the Mark V and okay. the Ruger position as a combination. A man built like yourself could handle a Ruger position like the average man could handle a hunting rifle. So oh, I'll have to look into that. And I, I think that's the, that's the thing. That was my real eye-opener going from the UK to here because, like, when you're in the special forces, you're like, well, this is your weapon. This is your weapon. You don't have a choice. This is it. And this is the sites you're going to be using. Whereas you come here and there's such a variety and it takes about four days to walk around the shot show. And I was just like, how do you differentiate between them? And so for me, it's getting that knowledge from people like yourselves, people who are out there shooting. But as, as you as we all know, we all all then we all have our own sort of um, steers towards something that we, we're used to. Like for me, for example, the bike ride. You know, I use all bare bikes, and people are out. Oh, have you tried this bike up? I don't know because I've only ever used one bike, and so for me that works. And so for I suppose as individuals, whatever works for you. You know, there's something probably what I'll do. I'll probably spend a bit more time, uh, a bit of trial and error with different ones, and then maybe we'll come back. I'll come back to you soon with my uh, my final decision. 
Well, well you're certainly you're certainly in the same in the right place to do that, aren't you? Oh, oh, without a doubt. You know, it's just, it's like you know when we talk about the pistols, like the Glocks came in after I left. You know, so for me it was the Sig. I'm happy with the Sig. But then when you some, try some of these other pistols, it's like, oh yeah, they, these are great. These are great. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm like a, a kid in a toy shop. Really, I've got the opportunity to really sort of trial and error on some of these. But I will. I'll come back with you guys with my with my final. Um, my, my, my top three list are you going to go back to shot show uh, next year yeah so uh so um i'm actually i'm in shot show this year uh so january um i'm doing a, a book signing at leopold booth and at 511's booth as well so so i'll be i'll be going there uh, and probably having a look at a few weapon systems as well this time I wanted to ask you quickly is when you chose to do the bike challenge, you were basically mm-hmm. a novice rider and yeah. entering, you know, getting into hunting. How do you find the hunting community over there in terms of in comparison to the UK bike community? Because your book made me laugh um, when you were talking about cycling past all these people in Lycra and you with your kind of bulky non-rider form. Um, yeah. So like breaking into new communities. How do you feel about breaking into the kind of the hunting or shooting community in the States? Yeah, I think, you know, I think just to, to give some background for probably Andy and Rob. So, yeah, so when I, I'd never cycled before and where I lived in Scotland, uh, Deeside Thistle, they were called the largest and oldest cycling community in, in, in the UK. But because I didn't have the right sort of bike, I, I was almost being snubbed. You know, when I was cycling and people, were, you know, were looking at me. And then a few months later, I did the ETAP Ness around Loch Ness and came to like 140 out of two and a half thousand. So they all then started chatting to me and actually i said look I, I need to cycle on my own anyway so you tend to find that it's quite snobbery the um the cycling community you need to have the right bike right equipment and things like that and actually whereas for me it's like well it's got nothing to do with equipment you peel it back it's your legs and, and your mindset but thankfully my my sponsorship marketing team did a swot analysis on the bike ride the strengths the weaknesses the opportunities and threats and the only weakness that came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community this 40 year old stocky guy who thinks he's going to cycle 14,000 miles you know thankfully no one said that in the cycling community but it was felt a couple of times but back to your original question the hunting community you know I yes I was in the special forces and, and I've done some great things and that but I haven't been hunting before and I'm quite transparent to that and and for them they really sort of took me in with open arms and they're like they don't see it, it was just appreciated more or you're, you're you're sort of welcomed with open arms I think they were really pleased that I decided I wanted to do something that they all have a um you know a love for and for me I was like I, I always like to learn from people you know I just treat me as a um as a blank canvas we have a phrase you know don't teach me to suck eggs you know for me i'm like just tell me tell me everything if, you know and, and i'll be a sponge so yeah the, the the hunting community very different from the cycling community they were happy to share all their knowledge you know their lessons learned what works for them what doesn't work for them i think i, I talk about in my book one thing we do in the special forces is Every time we come off operations or exercises, whatever we're doing, we have a hot debrief and there's three questions and it's like, what worked, what didn't work? And if we were going to do that again, what would we do differently? And so that's the, they're the sort of questions I ask these people and um, no, but they've, they've been great. And, you know, my, my phone is, is constantly people telling me that we're, we're off to such and such state and uh, especially now, you know, up in Montana and places like that. And so, yeah, they're, they're let, inviting me to a lot of events. Um, I just need to find more time. But yeah, very much more receptive than it was from the cycling community. 
that's really good to hear because it was it was mm. kind of sad reading reading that part of the book having read what you went through to then have that mm. kind of negativity um yeah it wasn't um I, I could sort of see it wasn't really a cycling community it's probably more those that make money doing this all their lives who are enduring cyclists that uh, who, who does this guy think he is coming in and I, you know i just did it to prove to prove a point um and so I know I sort of joke that the kayaking community will be feeling that soon, but they're not, you know, they, again, the kayaking community have been really receptive as well on, on my next challenge. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. You finished your book talking about the next challenge being um, mm. kayaking the Nile. When are you doing mm. it and what's your training going like for it? So I was originally, obviously, um, I never looked beyond the bike ride. I did it. I did the bike ride, so I wasn't smuggling people across borders and burying weapons in the desert and, and stuff like that. You know, so I didn't see a career in in guest speaking books or TV. So uh, when people came out, I said, what, "What's next?" So I've enjoyed cycling. You know, I dip my toe in cycling. So my USP is I like to take a sport I've never done before and find the biggest challenge. So having cycled the world's longest road, I wanted to kayak the world's longest river, obviously being the Nile. COVID then hit which sort of scuppered, scuppered the whole plans there. Uh, but then me and my family decided to move to America during COVID while the world was paused. And so we sort of come here and set up. The, everyone loves the idea. It's one of them ones, it doesn't matter how many, how many millions you've raised for charity or how many world records you've got. We're in a society where, or how many Instagram followers you've got. I'm not really, it's a world I'm not, I'm not used to. So chatting to sponsors and some of the TV, uh, the, the production companies, they love the concept, but they want me to sort of build, build the profile more. So I, the Nile is put on pause and I'm currently working, I've got to be careful what I say because I'm under embargo, but currently working on a huge show, one of the main streamers. Um, it's a military show. I go around the world, um, getting a slight insight into the world's elite forces. So working on those projects at the moment and what that will then do, you know, it'll raise your profile and then I can then bring the Nile back in. It'd be easier to get sponsorship. And then from a philanthropy fundraising aspect, the more eyes that are on you, then the more money you can raise. Like you said, we raised £930,000 on the bike ride with it as a, I wasn't even on social media then. I literally started the week before, you know, if you use correctly with the right team around you, you, you can, you can make more than that. So that's the plan. And who will you be raising money for? This one will be uh, more modern slavery and human trafficking. We will also high touch on uh, climate change. You know, one of the biggest, the biggest challenge with the bike ride was actually the target of raising the money. You know, we put ourselves under so much pressure on, on that that actually the bike ride, I sort of joke, was quite easy. Uh, my wife sort of runs all the, all the fundraising in the background. So we won't set a target. And as they won't set a target, but, but there will be a fundraising page um, for that. And again, we'll just take our lessons learned from the previous challenge and then, and then adjust to this. This comes with different threats, you know, crocodiles, hippos, <laughs> civil war in South Sudan. God. So, yeah, it'll be good. Yeah, I think it's it's amazing Alana's resilience, and of course you've you've got three yeah. children now. She just had a, she just had a, another one recently, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, about seven weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's she sounds like a, a phenomenal person, and just the the support that she's kind of given you throughout is is pretty phenomenal. Mm. And it kind of brings me back to one of my final questions. You mentioned Prince Harry earlier, mm. um, just how you'd met him on the JTAC course, yeah, and yeah. in and out of your life, and then you'd ended up working on the charity together. I mean, you've got your book out 
in a few weeks and then he's obviously got his book out in in January do you still talk are you still in kind of comms with him or have any banter around the book the books going um, out and competing yeah yeah no no we, we we still talk you know we're very as you realize in the book you know I got into North America on day 17 I was 14 days ahead of the world record um I mean I was like perfect you know I've got loads of time and then Lalana rings me and tells me being invited to Harriet and Megan's wedding which changed the dynamics completely of the bike ride. So, you know, so th- th- with, 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 with him, you know, I finished that bike ride two days later, we had the raw wedding. And so every time I tend to do something, it gets overshadowed by, by him. You know, I, I got back and all the, all the interviews were like, oh, what were the canapes? What did you drink at the wedding? I'm like, really? I've just smashed two world records, become the first man in history. And so, and then my my book got launched in the UK, and then him and Megan had done something in South Africa. So I'm, I'm I literally I'm trying to find an, a, a period of time where he's not going to be sort of overshadowing me. So thankfully, my book comes out two months before his. So at least I can get my my own sort of story. But it's, it's one of the ones that you know we're very much still in communications. It's only up the road. You know we do a lot together, but not distancing. But maybe you know I have my own story. You know I'm otherwise known as Prince Harry's special forces friend, which is fine. But you know I've been called worse. But, you know, it's almost like you can never get away from that. That's, that's the problem. You're always going to be, um, when you have a friend like that, he's always going to be in the shadows or people are going to be asking, asking questions. So thankfully for me, the book will get released before his book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe you can give him some banter about um, yeah, picking yeah, him course, to the post yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. See if you can sign me a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have one one final question for you. And it was really, what does the term relentless mean to you? Relentless originally, especially with the book title, was just going to be a holding title. You know, one of the ethos of the UK Special Forces is the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. You know, is that you just do, every, you do everything to the best of your ability. And obviously, you know, some people will always compare themselves to others. And, and that's the problem with likes to social media. People look at other people and, you know, think they're not capable of being able to do that. But as long as you can look at yourself in the mirror each day and know that you give them 100 percent and you can't ask for any more. And that's I mean, for me, it's just jumping in two feet, giving it 100 percent. That's being that's being relentless. Whether you achieve your aim or whether you fail, as long as you know that you give it 100 percent, then you can't ask for any more. But in, you know, whether that's in the special forces, whether that's in sport, whether that's in finance, whether you're a carpenter, you know, it's just giving it your your 100 percent and and always looking to sort of improve. You know, we're in a again, we're in a sort of society where people are scared of the word failure. No, failure is, is a bad word. You know, for me, you know, I call it experience. You know, if you've changed the word to experience rather than failure, then people's mindsets will be will be slightly different. But, you know, but as long as you learn from that failure slash experience and don't repeat it, then you, you've learned you've learned from it. If, if you then repeat it, then you obviously haven't learned from it. So, so for me, it's just that, you know, the answer to the question, just giving it 100% all the time. Thank you so much, Dean. Uh, I think that's been really insightful and I hope I haven't kind of given too much of your book away in that, no, in no. that, in that interview. No. Well, we all know that I broke a world record anyway, so that's it. <laughs> Andy, um, Rob, I, I know I've completely um, stolen Dean in most of that. Sure. Are there any questions that you guys want to ask Dean specific to PMD? sporting that I haven't covered yeah I've got maybe one or two at the moment you're using a long range sniper scope or a, a long range target yeah. whichever theatre you're working in at the time 
which is obviously lending itself now to the hunting scene, which is something that we have started in the UK hunting market to see. I think because a product is at that top end in one mm. field, it's so robust, so strong, I think it then lends itself to filter down into the hunting market as opposed yeah. to the other way around. So my question would be, are you going to stick with the Mark V HD, maybe a different reticle for a different situation, or would you look at other specific hunting scopes in the Leopold range? And what range find did you use? So for me, the, uh, the answer to the question, I would look at other other scopes. I'm actually flying up to Leopold Factory on the 27th up there, and, and I'm getting an optics one-to-one lesson from the, the team up there. So I'm going to have soon going to have exposure to all of their potential scopes. And so uh, my answer to the question, at the moment, I use the Mark V because that's all I've used from Leopold. But um, once I sort of test some of the others, and I have no doubt I will um, I will use some of those. But um, no, I'm really looking forward to going up to Leopold on the, on the 27th. It's the first time I've been up to the factory and sort of really get an insight into into all all, all their scopes. And, and again, still they're still learning you know i i message you know people message me on my posts from leopold you know ask me great questions like you guys are asking i'm, I'm that well you know some of these are, are new to me but the, the great thing about leopold team they'll come in and they'll, they'll answer those those more detailed questions so for me i'm still and i'm not a blank canvas I'm, I'm still learning learning myself and so you'll probably see over time, as my posts change, there'll be different sites I'm using. There'll be different weapons, probably as well. So yeah, we we have a conversation in maybe a year year's time. You know, if we're talking completely different, probably have a different weapon, different scope. The the lot just purely because I've had time chance to use it. What also uh, people are probably not aware is that Leopold now got a new range of of sunglasses as well. Sort of really using using and promoting them. They've been they've been quite good as well. And in the military community, because over here. You know the seals all use gaiters, uh, and it's like you know. So I've been giving these guys some of the Leopold glasses, and that yeah, they've changed. They've changed. They love them. Thank you for listening. And if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Podbean for more, and visit VikingShoot.com for more details about Viking arms, Merkel rifles, and Leopold optics.